Welcome to the RAS Life, a podcast by RAS Extension. Hi, I'm Charlton. And I'm Harriet. And we're Extension Officers for the Australian RAS industry. Each week, we'll bring you a conversation that's connecting growers with research, technology, and best practice. For today's pre-season episode, we hear from Brian Dunn at the New South Wales DPI. Good morning, everybody. Um, Because there's only a few of us, feel free to to butt in and and ask a question anytime. I can't see the chat, so Harriet and... um, Charlton will have to keep an eye on that, but um, it's easy to ask a question about something relevant at the time. We're going to talk about agronomy and nitrogen management. So we'll start with last year, which for some people was pretty ordinary. And um, the main feature of last year was obviously the temperatures. So we had quite warm temperatures through that green phase in November. And once we got to early December, you can see the red is the last season and the the black line is a 60-year average, um, cooled down. We had a number of days below the minimum below. And then when we got here to sort of the critical stages of microstore and flowering, we had a number of events that were well below the, what we call critical limits. And if you're unlucky enough, you got old at microspore and at flowering and had some really um, disastrous impacts. It slow the phenology of the crop down a bit. So this is just residual sown. An idea of the days from first flush um, to PI. So we're looking at 75 days for last season, which is a little bit longer than average, but not too bad. It really slowed it down as we got through that um, reproductive phase. You can see it's 35 days there from PI to flowering, whereas normally we're only looking at closer to 30. Other important thing to talk about with phenology is how each growing method is very different. So the the um, the longer a crop is ponded, the faster it grows. So when you go from aerial sowing to drill sowing, you've got a reduced period of ponding. It takes longer to develop. So it's about an extra seven days. So you have to, to sow, have your first flush seven days before you sow an aerial sowing crop. And if you're going to delay permanent water, you add another 10 days onto that. So those sort of dates, I'll come back to you and talk about sowing dates, but they're really important in getting your timing right. So you sow at the right time for the sowing method. If you are sowing late, it's really important that you, um, if you drill sowing, that you don't push it any later than you need to. So you fill up as early as possible because yeah, any delay in going to permanent water will even further delay the growth of the crop. We had a number of experiments this year. I think there's 11 experiments across the district. So these are just our ones at Leeton Farm where we had a a drill, a delayed permanent water and aerobic bay with sort of multiple experiments. And then we had a lot across the districts. I was just going to go through a few of them to sort of sh- highlight what happened this year. So this is an experiment up at Wajali, a drill zone on that um, nice soil up there. You can see here we're peaking yields around 16 tonne and there's not a lot of difference. Here the top yielder is Sherpa and um, followed closely by Rizik and VO37. VO71, sorry. VO37 is a, a variety that Peter Snell's had going for three or four years now. We've been testing for a couple of years. It has good cold tolerance, but it's not meeting the grain quality. So, so at the moment, it's probably not going to go anywhere, whereas 71 is meeting the grain quality and looks like it's a goer. So you can see here I've got nitrogen rates. I'll have a few of these graphs, and so they'll work pretty much the same. The first number is... Um, urea applied pre-permanent water and the second number is urea applied at PI. So you can see we've got increasing pre-permanent water nitrogen rate. Then we've got a split. The purple here is a split. 
with the 325 plus 60, so it'll equal a total of the of the last number. And what you can see here, once the nitrogen level gets up to a certain, you know, up to the optimal for that crop, yield generally plateaus out with increased nitrogen before it'll start to decline with either cold or or lodging becomes really bad in, in certain years. This is our um, Colliambly experiment we had this year, which was a late sown drill, so it was a Vian field. And here we had six varieties. So we sowed Rizik and Sherpa in 71, and they're all out of their windows because it was sown, um, was sown the 17th of November, so they're well outside their windows, but it's a good test of those varieties when they're sown late. So in this situation where we had um, Viand and the other two varieties, Leo 25 and 35, they're both um, late sown varieties that we're just testing out at the moment. You can see when you sow outside the window of Rizik and Sherpa 71, Viand is the highest yielder. And we, and we find that. So you're better off, I know last year Viand wasn't always available, but if you're in that situation, you're sowing late, you probably don't have the same yield potential out of Viand but you're better off than sowing those other varieties out of their, out of their window. This experiment at Rappel, which Ben Hayslip um, looked after for us, and we had pretty much all the varieties, all the commercial varieties. And what we did, we had to split sowing. It's the only way to really compare varieties when, is to, when they're different durations to put them in their actual proper sowing window. So we had the mainstream varieties here, Rizik, Sherpa or whatever, um, sown first and then the varieties in red, which were the Viand and those other two early, early maturing varieties, um, were sown later. So you can see the first, first flush of the first varieties were 21st of October, the second varieties were 22nd of November, permanent water was 16th of December. So you could really say the first varieties were delayed permanent water and the second varieties were just drill. But you can see here when we sowed them at the, their right window, uh, Rizik Sherpa and VO71, that out-yielded VN. Experiments from Bunaloo. So it's a drill zone experiment. And it's um, if you don't know, Bunaloo's about 70K southwest of Denny. So it's getting quite low in the rice growing area and has a bit cooler temperatures. You can see a little bit of, of haying off here on some of these plots. It was drained a fraction early, but it hasn't impacted the yield so much. The quality would probably be a bit nasty. So we've got the same as same varieties and same nitrogen rates as what we had in the in the experiment up at Wood Jelly. You can see what happened here. So it was first flush was at the right time, 15th of October. Permanent water was probably a little bit later than it could have been. There was a few rainfall events which slowed it down. But you can see the RISIC and the VO37 both um, yielded quite low compared to the other varieties. If you look at this, you'd immediately go, well, obviously these two varieties have a lower cold tolerance and that's what's happened here. But because we have all the phenology data uh, and we know a lot about the varieties, we actually know that the RISIC's the least cold tolerant, Sherpa and VO71 are similar and in the middle, and VO37 is the most cold tolerant. And the other thing to note here is that there's really not much impact of, of nitrogen. So the high nitrogen rates here make the sterility a bit worse in the RISIC and the VO37, but not, not significantly. You've still got really low yield to the lower rates. Um, it had no impact up here on the, um, on the Sherpa and VO71. So what did actually happen is that the RISIC and the VO37 got hit with cold. 
this graph just shows the mid-flowering date for those varieties. So in the middle here, Sherpa and 71, and they both came to flowering about a week earlier than the Rizik and the 37. You can see here as you increase nitrogen rate, it does delay development a bit, which is what we always find. Um, but the main impact here of the cold was the timing when these crops went through or when these varieties went through microspore and flowering. It wasn't the extra nitrogen applied. So to try and bring all the, sort of, all the data together from all our trials, um, I've got here mid-flowering date versus grain yield. And these are for all the um, varieties in our, in our range of experiments. You can see that um, as there's sort of a fair plateau here of grain yield until we get to about here somewhere, and then grain yield really drops off as we get later into February with flowering. And if we look at the optimal recommended window for flowering, it's in this blue period. And when we get outside that, we're starting to get the serious yield decline, which, which happened this year with that late cold. So in review of the 21 season, we found as we did last year that RISIC was really affected and greatly extended its growth during the season, which had a significant impact. Anything that was sown a little bit late then got pushed even later and into that cold event. The, um, the late zone cross were then hit by cold at microspore or flowering, or the worst got hit at both, which had a you know really large grain yield reduction. And that the, the timing of the microspore and flowering had much more impact on cold than nitrogen rate. So, so taking into account what happened this year, what, what should we consider going forward is, is firstly, we recommend you sow or have your first flush in the in the, in the recommended window for the variety and the sowing method. If you're going to go late, um, don't use delayed permanent water at all. Go to permanent water as early as possible if you're drill sowing. And maybe if you're drill sowing and you are late or even aerial sowing and you're very late, it's probably worth reducing that pre-permanent water nitrogen by a little bit just to help reduce that cold risk. It's not just the risk of the cold, but it's also the risk of pushing it later with the high rates of nitrogen. Probably one thing I'd like to, I'd really like to emphasise is that, you know, I've heard some people saying this year, well, my cold was, was because I had high nitrogen rates. In a lot of cases, it's not, it's the impact of the timing. There may be some situations where the nitrogen was too high. But if you significantly reduce your nitrogen for next season, there's a good chance you're going to reduce your yield potential. So we'll talk about that more as we go along. Most of you would already know that we don't have a soil nitrogen test for us. So um, the reason is that the, the test that you normally use for your wheat and your, your other summer crops that aren't um, ponded measures soil nitrate. And when a rice field is flooded, it goes anaerobic and nitrate is lost within a couple of days as a gas. So it's only ammonium that, that's left. So the rice crop actually uses the, the nitrogen that's mineralised during the growing period of the crop in, in the form of ammonia. That's why it's quite difficult for us to, to give really good pre-permanent pre water nitrogen recommendations. Because as you know, the soils, the nitrogen level varies across fields and soil types and paddock histories, but also within areas and within fields. So the best we can do is really look at the average of all our data. So this graph shows six years of RISIC results. So the pre-permanent water 
urea across the bottom. So Mount KG's bacteria urea applied and grain yield on the top. Green dots are actually just last season. So I put those in there to highlight what that season was. And you can see these low ones here and here and even across here. They're the Bunnaloo site that got hit really badly um, by that hole by being delayed. There's a good general trend that we always find with rice. It's really quite good. It increases in grain yield as you increase water nitrogen until it reaches a plateau. And it plateaus for a while and then it, um, it'll either start to lodge really badly or in cold periods it'll start to have increased um, risk of cold, um, reducing, inducing sterility. So what we're really aiming for in most situations, in most fields that have a legume history for the semi-dwarf varieties, we need to have this sort of rate of nitrogen pre-permanent water to get up to the maximum yield potential. This graph, um, the combination of Rizic, Angi and Opus, and what it shows is, is the impact of applying nitrogen at the eye. Here we had a multiple nitrogen rates which generated this nitrogen uptake level across the bottom. So as and the red line is when you put no PI nitrogen. So that's yield you gain with no PI nitrogen. So as as your um, crop nitrogen level goes up by increased fertilizer, yield comes up and then plateaus here. So the same plots then were split and they had 130 kg urea per hectare, which increased yield a bit, and then also 260. What you can see here is if, if you don't get enough nitrogen, so here I've highlighted 94, but you always talk about 100. If you don't get a nitrogen uptake of about 100 at PI, you can't get enough increase in yield by applying PI nitrogen to reach your maximum yield potential. That's why we're sort of saying you need to get enough on up front to get your pre-permanent pre water to get the yield potential by PI because you can only make up a, a small amount of PI. It's just a up. Taking that into account, sort of, we have some recommended rates for the semi-dwarf. So these are Rizic Sherpa and VO71. So it does vary depending on your soil type and your paddock history. So they're only a guide. But on most crop soils, you're looking at a minimum of 260 kgs of urea per hectare. Pre-permanent water. And then if you're finding that your soils are always needing more than that, you're needing to put a lot on a PI, you might be pushing that to 320 or more. And then if you're on the hungry clay, heavy clay soils like we have here at Leeton Farm or in heavy cut areas, you could be pushing up to 400 or even in some cases more than that. And the other thing is the field's not even. So you'll find areas in the field like if it's recent cuts or even it might be 10-year-old cuts if they weren't top, um, topsoil properly you'll probably need to split your nitrogen across those areas. Some of those some of those um, cut areas or low producing areas might need four or 500 or whatever, but you need to use your experience. This table just shows the difference between the varieties. So I'm sort of saying here you need these varieties, Rizic, Sherpa and Opus. To get up above that 100 nitrogen uptake, you're needing in this sort of 220 to 350. But when you move to the other varieties like Topaz, Dungara, Langi and Vian, you've got limiting factors. So with Topaz and Dungara, their limiting factors are cold. If you go too high, you, you greatly increase your risk of cold with these varieties. They're not near as tolerant as, as the varieties up the top. And so you still need to be getting up around that 100, but you definitely don't want to go excess pre-permanent water.
And when you get to Langy, you've also got a lodging problem. And the end is not so, not as much about cold. It's more about lodging. You put too much fertiliser on it early, it'll grow too big and, and fall over. The other factor we need to consider with nitrogen is that the different sowing uh, irrigation methods have different efficiencies. So if you're aerial sowing and dry broadcasting, so the best method to put your fertiliser on is to drill it into the soil, seven to 10 centimetres, prior to putting your permanent water on. And doing it 40 to 60% efficiency of your nitrogen. We're just talking about urea here. If you're um, conventional drill, so you'll drill your crop and you'll go to permanent water at three to four leaf stage, you spread your urea onto the dry soil um, prior to putting your permanent water on. Now, it's really important the soil's dry. If the soil's not dry, at least to three or four centimetres, the urea dissolves in the water and stays in the water and a lot can be lost for lateralisation. It needs to actually go in with the water into the soil and touch the clay particles. So that soil's dry, looking at 50 to 70%. And with delayed permanent water, because you're looking at the like the picture on the right, yeah, the crop is well established, it's got a lot of roots, it's growing really vigorously, it's warm. Same thing, you put the urea under the dry soil, permanent water, takes it up really quickly, grows, and you're looking at a, a higher rate of efficiency there. The important thing to remember, if, if you're doing a lot of aerial sowing and dry broadcasting and you've got standard rates, if you move to particularly delayed permanent water and you put the same rates on, you might be overdoing it. So you, you might need to cut back a bit on that urea, taking into account that delayed permanent water will be more efficient. Now, the other important thing that we really need to take account of is, is variability. So within the field, so a few years ago, we started to really notice that a lot of growers are actually inducing variability in, the, in their field by spreading urea. So a big, big uptake of spreaders, you know, they're really quick and I can understand why growers use them, but if they're not used properly, you can get three or four tonne difference between the, the lows and the high strips. And um, that also makes massive difference for maturity and, and all other sorts of things, how you drain. We've also got in-field variability due to cut and fill or different soil types and that sort of thing. And as you can see, you can't make it all up at PI. So you need to address a lot of that variability pre-permanent water because it's too late by PI. There is an opportunity early December. There's lots of NWI imagery around that's free. And in early December, when the crops get a reasonable growth on it, you need to be aware, really wary it's not a water depth impact affecting your NWI image. And make sure you, it's not weeds or poor plant stand but you can top press the poor growth areas in these in these situations early December, giving enough time to grow to get big enough by PI and then check it again then. So definitely recommend you looking at your paddocks early December for variability and opportunities to even it out. Not top dressing the whole paddock, just top dressing out bits that are definitely poor growth. So in summary for nitrogen, it's important you apply sufficient nitrogen pre-permanent water to reach that 100 sort of target, otherwise um, yield potential is lost. This is for the semi-dwarves. Different sowing methods have the different um, efficiencies you really need to be aware of. Um, we did, a, we did another trial this year, I haven't put the graph in for time, but we applied nitrogen at tillering as well as pre-permanent water. And the same as numerous experiments we've done over the seasons, we've never found an increase by applying nitrogen at tillering for delayed permanent water. By applying it all pre-permanent water has always given us the equal highest yield. 
But in saying that, if there's variability in the field, um, it's a good opportunity to um, pick up the low growth areas, even the field up. And also um, Josh Hart's now done two years, four experiments looking at um, enhanced efficiency fertilisers. And um, in all experiments, he's never obtained a grain yield advantage by using these fertilisers over standard urea practice. And um, definitely never an economic advantage because the added cost of these um, fertilisers is quite high. If you're deciding at the moment which variety to go, it, we've got a lot of resources available. Dave, we'll talk about this later, but there's a lot of information in the Rice Variety Guide and we've got individual growing guides for every variety. So we've got um, graphs like this or tables which show the show how the varieties have respond, responded in our experiments. So they're sort of relating to RISIC as a standard in every experiment and how the varieties have um, related in yield compared to RISIC. Also got varietal characteristics, so all the important stuff. And here I've just highlighted topaz. So we've got maturity, establishment vigour, and so there's a lot of work on establishment vigour, um, shattering tolerance. We've done a lot of work on that and lodging tolerance. The reason I highlighted topaz is because it, um, it's quite a sensitive variety to cold and it also has really poor establishment figure. So um, there's a big bonus this year, which will be talked about on growing topaz. And, it, you know, it can, growers often can grow topaz really well. But I would recommend that you be aware of these potential constraints and you definitely don't grow all your crop for something like topaz because you are at high risk. But I definitely um, look at these tables to, to see what the risks are with each variety and what the benefits are. We have the sowing date tables here, and you can see VO71s in the same group as RISIC and Opus. In a normal season, it's one or two days longer to flower, but in a season like last year where RISIC extended, it was shorter. But you're best to go to each individual, individual growing guide because when you go to each of these, every growing guide has a, a table like this which shows the recommended sowing period for the, for the for that variety for the different sowing methods. So you can see aerial sowing is sowing later. So delayed permanent water because it takes a lot longer to grow. You have to have it first flush earlier and then drill and the aerial will be your last sown. All these sowing dates are actually in these locations because of over here on the right. Because the most critical thing here, the hatched area here is is over like 60 or 70 years of data, temperature data, that's a period where you've got the least risk of getting cold. It's not to say you won't get cold because sometimes, you know, cold events come and go, but this is a period where you have the highest probability of not getting cold if you want to talk in reverse. So this is when we want our microspore and our flowering in this period here. And that puts PI into the first couple of weeks of January. And so we then work backward from all our experiments of phenology to have these sowing dates in this period. It's really important that um, you... Um, sorry? Is there a question? I can't hear, sorry. Oh, I think I just um, muted. It might have been a bit of background noise. I'm just muted who I think it might have been. So it's all right. You can carry on, Brian. Problem. Unless, Thanks, yeah, go for it. So, I'm going to talk a bit about VO71. 
um, there's been a fair bit of talk about it and um, we've had it for two years in our district experiments and so far everything I've found has been positive. So um, I'm always looking for the negative because I don't want a farmer to be surprised by something with a new variety and oh, it's wonderful and then to be a negative come out of it and have a big impact. And we've looked at them quite um, strongly over many, many characteristics and we haven't found any negative so far. In all our experiments, the A71 has always yielded higher than RISIC. It's got superior cold tolerance to RISIC, so we don't have data from our experiments on that. It's really difficult. You need to have systems set up to measure cold tolerance. And Jackie Mitchell from the University of Queensland, who does a lot of this cold work, um, she tells me it's similar to Sherpa and so does Peter Snell, the breeder. Um, so they're saying it's similar to Sherpa. It has reduced grain shattering. Tina and I have done a lot of work on shattering the last couple of years and it's much better than RISIC. So it's similar to Sherpa for shattering, which is a good advantage if you're sort of delayed harvest or a bit of hail or, or wind. We also found Tina does a lot of work on establishment vigour with slant boards and also field work. And we found it's got strong establishment vigour, similar to RISIC. RISIC is always our first variety in all our experiments, always our first variety to emerge and has the strongest figure. We think it's got similar lodging resistance to RISIC, but the last two years haven't been bad years for lodging. So we haven't seen any reason to suspect it's any worse than RISIC. We think it's very similar. Probably one of the bigger, biggest positive as well is that it's, it's photo period sensitive. So in the last two seasons, we've found RISIC has really been delayed with the cool temperatures and has pushed RISIC out later. And in last year, particularly, it pushed into those cold temperatures, which is a, a real problem. At um, VO71, that hasn't happened. And you can see that by the, the results there I showed from, um, from Bunaloo experiment, where um, normally VO71 should be a couple of days longer than RISIC, but um, in those cold temperatures, it was several days earlier. So a big advantage there. These are just the yield difference. So if you just look at the right column, so the experiments through the Colley-Emily were jelly um, in the last couple of seasons and then um, down south as well. And the right-hand column shows the difference in yield. So the positive is that in every experiment, VO71 has yielded higher than RISIC and down south particularly um, it's yielded a couple of tonne higher and a lot of that's been due to RISIC being pushed late, um, but it's definitely um, yield advantage and we haven't seen any deficits from it. Nitrogen management. So I've just drawn a graph here of all the nitrogen uh, rates. So the same as the other graph that was for RISIC, but this is just VO71. So you can see pre-permanent water urea by grain yield. So you can see the same trend, increasing applied urea, plateau, and then a potential drop-off with um, cold or um, lodging. We haven't seen the lodging. So you're looking at that 300, you're looking at the same range where you're looking. You want to be at just at the beginning of the plateau. So you've got a bit of leeway if you overdo it, but you're not way back here where you've lost your potential. So you're looking at that 300 kg urea per hectare. It's just a picture. Anyone who went to the rice field day last year, remember that I spoke in front of this um, experiment at Rappel where we put multiple nitrogen rates on VO71. I just wanted to show the results from this. It sort of shows the PI nitrogen thing again. You can see here 200 kgs of urea with nothing at PI, 200 with 100 at PI and 200 with 200 PI. And you see it did increase yield, but not dramatically. 
when you can see, you could put 300 on, on here, permanent water, and it was greater than just having the 200-100 or the 200-200. So you need to get enough pre-permanent water and then top up at BI if it's if it's required. So VA71 is um, very similar in nitrogen habit to the other varieties, Rizik and Sherpa. Sowing rates. We have um, slightly reduced the sowing rates this year because we did a lot of work on plant populations three or four years ago and we found that our sowing rates were yeah, far um, excessive, um, much higher than what's needed. We found from the research that you know, with 100 plants a square metre, you got higher, achieved highest yield, you got right through the plant range. So the plant is really good at, at um, increasing tillers and grains per ankle for, for lower plant populations. You can see here the Rizik and the 71 are both in the same sowing window, they're large grain size, the same sowing rate. Topaz is up here because it's, it's poor germination and establishment vigour. So it's got a smaller grain, so realistically it would be down here with a lower rate because of those poor establishment and vigour, we've pushed it up here at a higher rate. And then as you get smaller grain sizes, the sowing rate goes down. So you can reduce these sowing rates even further if you've got good layouts or if you drill sowing and you've got really good equipment to get good even depth. There's a fair bit of leeway sort of going down for, um, for that. So remote sensing in the last season, a lot of you will be aware that um, Sunrise um, put a fair bit of money in and we put a little bit of money in towards getting Ceres imagery to get NDVI imagery of 10,000 hectares last season which was sort of delivered out to, to growers through the, the MapRice system. What we found with that imagery is even though the system worked well and we could predict nitrogen uptakes and we could predict a, a um, nitrogen top dressing rate, we found variability between the imagery. So a lot of the fields had you know, really good predictions, but there are a number of fields that the predictions were way off and totally unacceptable. And when um, James Brinkoff was heavily involved in this from UNE, when he went back through all the flights and the images, we found there wasn't consistency in the imagery we were getting from Ceres. There was difference in flights, difference between fields and, and times as well, which was too much variability. So we've actually decided in the coming season not to use Ceres, where um, the only option we had to try and validate and try and bring that imagery to a level we could get the accuracy needed was to sample the fields. And we felt this wasn't really somewhere that the industry and agronomists wanted to go. We have the tissue test if growers are willing to sample, uh, which is still quite valuable. But uh, to go to this other system and still have to tissue test wasn't, wasn't really where we wanted to be. So at the moment, Ceres isn't going ahead. Um, Agrifutures have put um, funded a couple of new projects this year on, on remote sensing as well as um, refunding our project. And um, so in the next um, several months, you'll find different information coming out about what these projects are going to do. And um, one of those is working with Sunrise to try and deliver, deliver regular NDVI images to growers for their fields. So you can see change over time and things like that, which would be really valuable. NDVI is fine up until about mid-December. And then it saturates out, the crop gets too big and you can't see the differences. But it's really good for identifying field variability and picking up where you, you know, go and have a look and, well, maybe this part of the field needs a bit of urea now. Um, it's too late by PI. 
So our unit, DPI and UNE, are looking at experimental satellite imagery, daily three-metre NDRE imagery. James in the process now is still experimental. He's trying to get access this year for us for a number of sites because um, we think it'll give much more consistency. And from the preliminary work James has done, it looks quite good. So at the moment, I can't tell you what's going to happen with the imagery. Um, so it's uh, a moving feast as we go forward. But as soon as something's available, we'll, um, we'll let you know. We have, um, as I've talked about before, and David will talk about, we've got many DPIs, got many agronomic management practice packages. I'd really encourage you, if you're looking at varieties, to get on the website and um, just search New South Wales DPI, Prime Fact, or VO71 Growing Guide, and, and look at the different growing guides and the features for each variety. So in summary, which is pretty standard really for, for rice growing, but um, choose your variety and sowing method that suits your situation. So people have different soils and layouts and things like that, which will influence their sowing method, different times when, when they can sow and other, and other commitments. So you need to decide what's best for you. <coughs> You're really important to sow on time for the variety and the, and the sowing method because it greatly reduces the cold risk getting that plant population in window, um, apply sufficient nitrogen pre-pernal water and uh, address that variability up front and utilise NDVI imagery. So. so thank you for now. Thank you, Brian. Do we have um, any, oh, we've got a question from Justin. I see that he's just raised his hand. Yeah, Brian, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just wondering on Rizzi, what's the risk of sowing too early in the window, like um, even before the window? There is a little bit of risk of cold because you can get cold events coming early, um, but you're a bit more protected by deep water. So as long as you get deep water on, so there's a little bit more cold risk, and there's also a little bit of potential with. Um, like you've got to harvest on time, making that drainage decision is harder. But yield-wise, we don't seem to um, yeah, find a, a dramatic increase, just so there's a bit more risk of drainage decision and potentially mill-out issues. If you don't, it'll tie down really quickly. If you can't harvest straight away, get on and harvest straight away, you'll have issues with grain quality. But as far as yield, there's not much problem. Right, along uh, that line, Collie, there's a bit of um, talk that Collie should probably should be, you know, more aligned with the Murray Valley rather than the MIA, particularly in um, sowing dates. Uh, you just got any comment around that? Yeah, we did look at temperatures. So we looked at the temperatures from our weather stations at um, up north and at Collie Ambly and, and Rappel and further south, and it is... It's a bit colder than, than up in Griffith, but it's not as cold as as Geraldry. And then when sort of so at the moment we've just got like up north and down south, but realistically it probably could be split a, a few more ways as well. So I don't I don't think it needs to be separated. I don't don't think it's that different from the MIA, but it does give you the opportunity. You just need to consider it's a little bit colder. Slightly colder, so you know you don't go on the end of the sowing windows. Yep. 
I think also we are, we've noticed that with the PI predictor, like the PI predictor this year, we're upgrading. So it has multiple sites. So, um, like I know previously when I've looked trying to do Collie Amley, well, you, you only have a choice of Griffith or Denny, and that's not really even. I'd do both and pick the middle. So this year with the PI predictor, we're going to go for growers being able to put their location in, and um, which will be much more accurate for, for that. Please rate, review or subscribe or share it to social media as this gives our podcast more exposure and we can share it with the wider industry. Until next time, have a rice day.